Hi, everyone. Welcome and thank you for tuning into The Animal Files, the podcast where we expose the truth, science, and spirituality of pet care and provide you with the wisdom and tools you need to raise happy and healthy companion animals. My name is Victoria, an animal spirituality facilitator and integrative energy practitioner. And my name is Miranda, an animal health technologist and pet care safety expert. Let's dive in, shall we? Well, hello, everybody. We have another wonderful interview. We are bringing so many people to your attention that need to have a spotlight shined on them. And our guest today is no different. His name is Leif Cox, and he is the founder of the Orangutan Project. So I'm going to toss it over to Miranda, and we are going to get the interview going. Thanks, Victoria. Yeah, we're really excited to talk with you today, Leif, and learn more about your foundation and why people should learn more about it and how it affects them in in different ways. So I know you have an interest in conservation and biology. What led you to become interested in that? Was it something that just developed or was there something that sort of led up to it? Um, I've always had an interest in in, um, animals and wildlife from a very young age. Even though I grew up in one of the, probably the largest metropolises at the time, Hong Kong, hmm. I kept a, a virtual menagerie in my room with terrapins and budgies and fish. <laughs> and so, so I always had the interest. I think initially everyone thought I was going to be an artist because I come from an artistic family and I, I was quite um, good at it. But I, I decided, yeah, to move into wildlife and conservation very early on and so that that's that's been my passion for my life okay did you see something watch something or have an experience with something that sort of put a light bulb in your head that oh I want to you know I see that conservation is something that is important and something that I want to be more involved in or I mean, it, it, these things slowly evolve over time, but I, I certainly right. remember when I was a child in Hong Kong, watching a program on the American passenger pigeon and leaving it, you know, at the uh, end, it was like shown there's just one passenger pigeon left, you know, mm-hmm. the last one of the species. And I was struck by a, you know, overwhelming sense of loneliness, you know, mm-hmm. and, and despair that, you know, that, to be the last of your kind, you know, with no hope of ever, you know, for your species or for you ever to have a companion again. And so that kind of compassion, I guess, and love and empathy, I guess, for living beings, not only the scientific and environmental tragedy of extinction, but the personal loss and tragedy of individuals as we slowly wipe out species from this planet. Mm. Yeah, I resonate with that quite a bit. One of the things that really sparked in me kind of the same thing is I was thinking about all these species that were going extinct. And I was thinking like, what does the last rhino feel? Like, what is he thinking? Mm-hmm. I mean, there has to be some type of energetic depression of sorts. I mean, obviously animals don't think like you and I, but there's got to be something there, that loneliness, that that longing for what was, but more on a generational and energetic level. I totally resonate with that. It's I think people need to realize that that's where a lot of people who are in conservation are coming from, that space. Yeah, I mean, I think anything worthwhile, you know, there's only two really, or maybe I'll say there are three things which are worthwhile doing in life. One is your simple, your duty. Your duty is in the roles you play, father, you know, mother, husband, wife, and employee. The only other two is the expression of love and beauty into the world. And um, the only thing we have to do is intelligently apply the application of, of, of that motivation to do anything in the world. And conservation is, is, a, is a good example of that. It must come up from a feeling of love and compassion for other beings. Mm. It then just needs to be intelligently applied and to ensure that love is is expressed in an effective way that makes a meaningful change in the world. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. The extinctions of species that have been occurring through, I don't know how long a period of time, do you think a lot of it, do you believe that a lot of it 
is related to human behavior? Or do you think some of it is just happening naturally? Yeah, I mean, species go extinct naturally over millennia. But yeah, it's kind of like a false argument to think that species now are going extinct on on their own accord. Mm. This is not the case. Mm. We've been pretty good at driving species to extinction for a long time. You know, I mean, America used to be full of elephants and camels and horses (laughs) before humans arrived and they were quickly wiped out. Yeah, the buffalo almost had that back in the pioneer days. The buffalo were almost completely wiped out. Exactly. We've been really, really good at wiping out species, you know, since our species has been roaming the planet. But now with increased technology, you know, we've just gone into hyper mode and we're seeing a level of extinction and destruction of the environment, which is threatening our very existence um, that we couldn't have conceptualized, you know, even 50, 60 years ago. Mm. Yeah. So you've chosen your focus now to be on orangutans and you have since founded the orangutan project. Can you tell us a little bit more about what this project involves, what the focus is, what projects you're working on, what some of the education is that you share? Mm-hmm. The overall strategy is to save up to eight ecosystems of the right type, shape and size of rainforest that will not only allow that rainforest to be ecologically sustainable, but to be able to hold sustainable populations of orangutans and also support other megafauna such as elephants and tigers and the rest of biodiversity. Mm. Along with that, we're developing economic systems under the rainforest canopy with indigenous communities. So we intend to hand over these ecosystems, not only as, as functioning ecosystems, which are going to be required to the necessary rewilding of planets needed in order to, for this planet to survive, but also the economic systems with indigenous communities so they'll be economically sustainable and people will also prosper you know, and live prosperous and meaningful lives as well as saving the wildlife and probably doing the most cost-effective uh, measures that we can do to help save our planet. Yeah, that's beautiful. I People have to realize how connected we really are mm-hmm. to the planet and to other species on this planet. You know, having that balance with having both the animal species and the human species thrive together, I think is one of the biggest, the biggest goals that we can have is like, how do we work together? How do we live together? How do we protect each other? Mm-hmm. And how do we maintain that balance on this planet? And you know, will we see it? I, I don't know. I hope so eventually. But, you know, I think that is one of the biggest goals that we should all have as conservationists is just no matter where it is, whether it's a, a city or a village, where's the balance in that? And if we can create balance in little pockets of the planet, maybe we can eventually have more balance in the world. Yeah, but I, I agree with all that. The main thing is, is we have to this idea of thinking globally, acting locally is, is a recipe for, I guess, failure mm. because we live in a globalized international world and our effect, you know, on one part of the planet has, has great outcomes in another part. Mm. We can no longer, you know, like the butterfly live in effect. A world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, certainly, you know, up until the century, you could probably say, hey, look, you know, you know, it's, we could screw all the people in the third world, destroy their environment, you know, take all their wealth from them and extract it to America and Europe. And hey, that's never going to come back on us, is it? You know, you could have done that, you know, and thinking, well, yeah, there's no comeback on this. Now the chickens are coming back to roost. We can no longer do that. Yeah. We've reached the point that it, it's irrelevant what nation you're from. It's irrelevant, you know, your race, society. And I would also argue it's irrelevant what species you are. You know, a huge amount of climate change and environmental degradation is coming from the meat industry, you know, and dairy industry. You know, what's the destruction of the rainforest in Indonesia affects the climate and the economic viability of people in America. Yeah. You know, and, and so there's really, you know, one chance for us is to have compassion, love, and empathy for all beings that share our planet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We can build that up. You know, we can all live a prosperous and happy life. You know, without that, we're dooming ourselves to extinction. So there's a moral imperative, if that makes sense. You know, oh, yeah. makes total we've got sense. to get our act together <laughs> um, 
you know, and, and as and that caring about others, that share our planet, all, all we're essentially doing ourselves. Yeah. yeah. Well, hopefully, the younger generation is starting to see the value of protecting our planet, protecting our wildlife, all of that, and going away from these industries that are profit and ego driven. Yeah, yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, we, we see the two elements is, you know, I mean, we're seeing almost a play where before, you know, in the 20s and 30s in Europe, all the countries turning to fascism and, you know, strong leaders, nationalism, you know, xenophobia, you know, and, and then also you see the increased level of enlightenment. Mm-hmm. We're, we're seeing the same thing here. We're, we're, we're teetering on, you know, you know, even America's teetering on whether it really wants to be a democracy or not, or, or you know, uh, whether it wants to be a player in the world or yeah. wants, it wants to be an isolationist. You know, these things are still playing out. We, we're not quite sure which way they're going to go. Yeah. But there's certainly more and more youths are getting least, least um, engaged. And that leaves us hope. If, but I guess what I'm, I'm leading to is two things. We've got to assure as functioning citizens of our countries that our countries tip in the right direction to save the planet because we're yeah. on that very tipping point and that's on our watch. Mm-hmm. And secondly, I always describe this is the most important decade in human history. This is a decade that will decide whether we're handing over to future generations a recoverable planet mm. that, you know, or a planet due to the feedback loops of climate change will spiral down into a planet which will become you know, a decaying mess mm-hmm. for political, social, environmental conflict. You know, so we certainly cannot rely on the education and the increased values of the next generation. It's really unfortunately up to us, you know, to do the hard yards now. So so they've got a fighting chance to build a better world. Right. Luckily, I'm noticing that some of the younger generation, they seem to be more aware Mm. of their surroundings, which is different from even my generation, Generation X. They're different. They see the world differently. And now I'm talking about the, the kids that are just going into college now. They just see everything differently. And I think there is definitely an increased awareness with that generation. And hopefully it's going to spill over and they'll teach the generations that come after them and maybe some of the generations that are already here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is a story that I heard a little while ago, which I think kind of encapsulates the mindset of certain groups of people. I don't know whether this is a large group of people or if it's a small group of people. I'm not really certain, but it was a story of a man who was in the park and he was feeding bread to the birds. And somebody came along and said, did you know that feeding bread to the birds is harmful for them because it doesn't provide them any nutrition. It deters them from going and finding their own food and they could actually become sick and die from it. And the guy's response was, yeah, I know that. And he continued to feed the bread to the birds. Mm. So it was like he had the awareness or the understanding of it. He just chose not to do anything with it. it, This is why I call two wings as the bird. We need the compassion and love, you know, to act. But Mm -hmm. we also need to do that intelligently. Mm -hmm. Uh, Otherwise, we create more problems than there is. I mean, we have in the orangutan world, people going to these dodgy tourist traps, you know, where orangutans are exploited, you know, you know, and great harm to them and conservation is happening. And they're thinking, oh my God, it's so wonderful, I connected with an orangutan. You know, but actually, you know, they're, they're actually supporting part of the problem, you know. And so that's why we need not only the compassion and the love, but the in, in intelligence. And ultimately, you know, it, it, you know, for example, with the orangutan project myself, you know, although I've had the privilege of working with orangutans for 30 years, the main point is, is I don't really want to work with orangutans. I far more want to work for orangutans. Mm-hmm. And that's a very different attitude, a different position. Because a lot of people, oh, I want to work with orangutans, you know, but mm-hmm. are you interested in saving them? Are you interested yeah. in welfare? Or is it just a, you know, a need of yours doesn't make sense for you know personal gratification that you're seeking this or are you genuinely altruistically wanting to help an, another living being and they're often very two different outcomes that's right. a really good point point we need to be able to 
distinguish between the two working with or working for, because in this day and age, we have to work for Mm -hmm. that is our role as humans, as guardians of this planet. Our role is to work for them so we can give them a voice. And so we can help them thrive, not satisfy our desire to work with animals. Mm -hmm. Exactly. This is why I say in order to reform the world, we first have to reform ourselves. And the man is feeding the birds is a perfect example. He has this overriding need of connection of, you know, having the birds like him and coming to see him and that sort of stuff. And he, he'll, he'll sacrifice the birds in order to feed that desire to fill the hollowness within inside himself. Mm. Others enter the conservation field and fill the hollowness within some inside themselves with name, fame, money, reputation, and they fight all the other conservationists. Mm. You know, know, there's all arguments and fighting and a bit of rivalry between conservation organizations because they're trying to feed that that hollowness within themselves, you know, with with this external stimuli. Mm. That's just a recipe of destruction. Mm. What we need to do is find that love and joy within us, and that's expressed out. And we don't need the pigeons to like us or to come with us. What we, what we need is the pigeons to be happy and healthy mm-hmm. and free, you know, and so that way we can genuinely, you know, affect meaningful change in the world. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Does the orangutan project do any type of rehabilitation for, for orangutans or is it more about trying to conserve their habitat and that type of thing? Mm-hmm. Well, we support both. Mm-hmm. As I said, the main game is protecting the habitat. Without rainforests and viable populations, orangutans, they're doing it anyway, both from a conservation point of view and a welfare point of view. Similarly, we help the rescue, rehabilitation, and release of orangutans for two reasons. One is compassion and, and the value of the individual themselves is, is worthy of all that effort. But secondly, when you have a critically endangered species such as the orangutan, every individual is an important genetic resource critical to the survival of a species. And so there's genuine welfare as well as conservation reasons why when you're dealing with a critically endangered species such as the orangutan, rescue, rehabilitation or release is also an important aspect that needs to be integrated into your planning. Mm. There's some rehabilitation programs that I have watched a little bit about, you know, they'll have like little video clips or posts or something about it. There seems to be a lot of human interaction where Mm -hmm. the human seems to be, I think, overly engaged with, and it's supposed to be wild animals, and then they Mm -hmm. go and release them after Mm -hmm. that. And I think that is probably harmful for them because they probably build up too much of a trust with human beings, which could potentially put them in danger later on because of human behaviors in the past. What do you think about that? Um, yeah, the first thing is to remember orangutans are persons with minds. Mm. And the, the rescued orangutans have gone through significant trauma, watching their mother killed and possibly eaten in front of them mm. and then treated horrifically badly. And so you have to repair their minds. Mm. Now, orangutans have the most soundest mind and sound psychology far more than any human. They're really stable people. And one of the reasons for this is they have this long, loving upbringing. So they suckle till they're eight years old. Oh, wow. And they stay with their mother sometime after that. And they have all the love and care and support they need. And that love and care and support produces a very mentally healthy individual, which is required for survival in the rainforest, to learn how you know all your forest skills, your social skills, mm-hmm. and to be independent and live a semi-solitary lifestyle. That mental health is, is critical to that. Mm. Now, how do you provide that mental health? Love, affection, a secure base to explore and learn in the environment around you. Without that, both humans and orangutans cannot prosper unless that mental health is still dealt with. Mm-hmm. And I showed this when we were started to introduce orangutans from zoos back into the world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we we're taking orangutans, you know, from in reintroduction sites of just rocking on the floor mm-hmm. like this, right? Holding themselves and rocking. Now, what, why they hold themselves and rock is to replicate the mother's movement, yeah, mm-hmm. and holding, mm-hmm. yeah. And through six weeks of love and interaction with a caring giver we got that individual for, as an example finding its own food in the wild mm. it just needs that love and support mm-hmm. to, to make that gap 
So at certain stage of rehabilitation, that loving and caring, although it's a poor substitute than its mother, needs to happen for that orangutan to prosper and move on to the next stages mm-hmm. of rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. The second part of it is orangutans are pretty damn smart, you know, Compared to us in our standards, they're telling you five, six job child, but that gives no justice to it. From their standards, we're morons. You know, they're geniuses in the rainforest. They have temporal spatial maps which are beyond our comprehension. They look at us and go, God, you're the most dumbest thing that ever entered the forest. <laughs> because we compare, we compare other animals and other individuals and other cultures by our own standards, mm-hmm. which is unfair because you know, culturally and evolutionary wise, we we adapt to become intelligent in only the ways which are suitable for our survival. Yeah. In fact, becoming intelligent in ways that don't aid our survival is very stupid because you spend a lot of money, so a lot of calories to support a large brain that doesn't do anything and actually puts your survival as an individual and species at risk. So orangutans are extremely intelligent and they know the difference between the carer, <laughs> the individual, the people around them and the illegal logger. You know, they're not going to go, oh, my God, all humans are the same, just as we don't, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. you know. So we, we don't have to worry too much. I mean, but there is some element of truth to that. For example, we know that ex-rehabilitated orangutans are more likely, if they come across a village, to, to you know, crack open the storage and raid the rice in it, you know, than a wild orangutan because they know, doesn't make sense, oh, okay, I've, seen this before, I know what there's some food in there. So they have pre-existing knowledge that a wild orangutan wouldn't know. They're still scared of the people and, and try to avoid them if they can in, in, in this particular situation. But they do have some pre-existing knowledge we can, can get them in trouble. And But of course, we don't release orangutans into an area unless we have the ability to protect them and secure them. And, and we don't have the relationship with the local people to, to ensure there's, there's mutual engagement that makes sense to ensure that the orangutans and people are safe. Mm, I think that's a really important, I guess, take is, is, does the orangutan stand out as far as other primates like chimps and apes? Do they, are, are they different in any way? Or should we be looking at those types of apes similarly? Because I know some species of animals can be different depending on their environment. Do you see a correlation or are they solely separate in their thinking and their mindset and their emotional capacity than other primates outside of us? I mean, there's two things that are happening. It's evolution, mm-hmm. yeah, and then culture. Now, I just explained the last one first to give you the, the basic background. A lot of animals, let's say a tiger, basically predominantly adapts to the environment through natural selection. It has lots of offspring, all genetically a little bit different, and nature selects which offspring is most genetically adapted to the ever-changing environment. That's natural selection. Now, some intelligent animals, such as elephants and the great apes and us, we adapt predominantly through culture. So we have very few offspring. We're born not with instinct, but with vacant brains. And our parents, and in the case of orangutans, their mothers, program that young brain over a long education period mm-hmm. 10 12 years that culture and that culture allows them to much more quickly and succinctly adapt to the environment far better than natural selection alone can provide a species the problem is that can only work when you don't have a natural predator mm-hmm. and that's why mm-hmm. you know yeah. orangutans okay. are, are such trouble because a natural predator i.e us has come in and upset that situation. So there's two things. So orangutans, and there's three species of them, you know, and each population has a different culture that, because they're adapting differently to the environment. And it's the same with chimpanzees and gorillas and bonobos. They all adapt to the environment predominantly using culture. Yeah, and to lesser extent, the natural selection would be with lower animals. But there's intrinsic difference between the subspecies, you know, um, sorry, species of um, great ape. Now, the analogy I give is if you give a screwdriver to a chimpanzee, it'll throw it at another chimpanzee. <laughs> the social, warlike, aggressive animals, you know, capable of warfare, and, you know, and capable of so much empathy and love, but capable of so much horror. Just that's why they're the closest relative to us. We can, we can yeah. they really hold the mirror up to 
what we are as as a species. Hmm. The grillers, you give a screwdriver to a griller, they'll scratch themselves with it. I call them the sports scholarships <laughs> of the great ape world. They're big, beautiful, but really dumb. <laughs> yeah. And um, you know, and a lot of monkeys are, are more intelligent than gorillas. You know, they're just basically they're gone for the well, we don't have to utilize brain to find food we just eat what around us and get big and beautiful you know now i won't tell you what the make love not war bonobos would do with a, a screwdriver but i can <laughs> tell you what a orangutan would do with a screwdriver ill escape oh wow <laughs> i've seen it so many times myself you know we're you know looking after some chimpanzees they've been in that enclosure for 10 years and they and you put an orangutan in it'd be out within a week <laughs> you know <laughs> Chimpanzee, you know, 10 years couldn't figure the way out, rank and think, uh, I'm out of here. You know, it's, so they are the most intelligent being that shares our planet, <laughs> even by our own standards. That's incredible. Yeah, all great apes and all beings deserve a right to live free of, of being persecuted and driven to extinction. But it's kind of, um, you know, doubly sad that the most intelligent being on our planet, and in fact, I would describe them as a more noble form of humanity than our species, is currently been driven to extinction. Yeah, that's sad. Mm. But I'm glad that there are people like you that are educating people. I think the more we educate people, the more we may choose to take on that education and be better. Yeah, no, I think I certainly think that the education is a um, an important part. But, you know, and, you know, a lot of my books now, like Finding Our Humanity, my last book, delve into this a little more. But there's a couple of things is, you know, you know, we've got to find that joy and love within ourselves and then express that intelligently. Absolutely. But there's a feedback loop. Mm. Just as we, we see if people, you know, if you want to calm down, somebody will say, breathe slowly. Mm. You know? If you want to feel a little happy, why don't you just try smiling? I mean, it's kind of strange. But, you know, obviously when we're calm, we breathe slowly. When we're happy, we smile, right? Um, but there's a feedback loop. <laughs> we can actually kind of, you know, have this kind of feedback loop that if we do that anyway, it, it feeds back into our happiness and calmness. Mm -hmm. Similarly, a life of self-service to other living beings mm -hmm. feedbacks to us and makes us happy and healthy. Oh, you know? absolutely. And, yeah. And, and, and joyful. So ultimately, it's an expression of our, our inner being that affects the world but there's a feedback loop so there's no downside in, in compassion and love and living a life which is you know which is in service to others it really does wonders to us as individuals yeah yeah I think being in service to others is definitely the direction to go but I think there's still a lot where people tell themselves they're being in service to others but they're not being honest to themselves that, oh, well, by doing this, even though it might be helping others, I might get noticed and I might get rewarded or, you know, get some kind of benefit from it. And I think most of us, I think a large part of humanity, I believe, is not at the point of being able to do things completely out of love without expecting any return for it. Yeah, and that's exactly right. And of course, there's no good from fooling yourself and trying to saying you're working for us where really you, you try and get something out of it because you will end up destroying everything that you've done and i've seen it so many times in conservation conservationists you know you know going crazy for you know you know needing name and fame or, or whatnot and then basically destroying the whole you know the whole process and outcome because of that desire so there's, there's no faking it if, if that makes sense mm -hmm. we've got to reform our, our, ourselves yeah otherwise yeah we you know we can't um we can't go further if that makes sense yeah so so personal development is uh, unfortunately i know it's difficult i would say like maybe difficult to find happiness within ourselves but it's impossible outside of ourselves yeah and then so i always encourage people you don't just sit in the himalayas and contemplate your navel for 10 years before you do anything yeah. <laughs> please go out there and, and start selfless work you know because there's a great feedback loop making yourself happy but you got to work on yourself yes and you've got to clean up your own garbage. Yes. You know, you can't be full of garbage and go out there and start picking up litter. You, you know, you've got to first clean yourself out. Mm -hmm. you know? And that's why, ironically, you know, um, the wisest words are that 
I've been given is your first duty in life is to be cheerful. Yeah. You know, don't spread misery. Yeah. You know, have a sense of cheer. Does make sense? I said, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. a sense of contentment and cheer, mm-hmm. you know, and don't spread the misery. And then you can at least start the journey from there on, on helping others. Yeah. 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 Well, I think people are going to react more to our way of being rather than what we're doing. Because if we become our true selves, if we become the calm, the peaceful, whatever loving being that we naturally are, and allow that Mm -hmm. to come through, and we're just being that, then that's going to just energetically just go towards other people. They're going to feel that it's going to affect them without them even realizing it. Mm -hmm. Well, you won't be able to help it. You know, as a counterpoint, as you know, if you've got a headache and you're stressed and you're going to make everyone around you miserable. You yeah. can't help it. It's not your right. fault. It doesn't make sense. You know, misery is just going to spread everywhere, you know. But if you're joyful, you know, you, you have to get it out. So it actually becomes not work. It's not work. You're not out and go, oh, my God, i got to get up in the morning and do this. And I've got to help this person. In fact, you got to get the joy out. you got to help. doesn't make sense. So it, it's not work. It's not burdensome. You know, I mean, it, it's a natural energy expression that has to come out in, in order to help others. Because you can't, you know, you're so happy, you can't bear anyone else <laughs> not to be happy. So it's a natural energy mm-hmm. expression. Um, so there's a lot of energy. Yeah, when you're happy, it's, mm. it's almost like, You don't even have to think. You just do. You're just compassionate. You're just Mm. in service just because you're happy, not because you're trying to get something out of it. It's just, I think it's a natural result of being cheerful and being happy because you just Mm -hmm. want to share that with people it's like it has to come out like you said exactly yeah exactly and all you gotta do is intelligently find according to your skills and opportunities how the most intelligent way to express that in the meaningful outcome that's all you have to do you know the 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 energy you know and the um the motivation you don't need anymore that that's just that's a natural that's a natural expression and i think another concept that kind of relates to that that maybe people would connect with perhaps a little bit more is the idea of you know when you're on the airplane they always tell you if the oxygen masks fall because the pressure has changed you always put them on yourself first and you don't put it on your child first because if you put it on your child first and you lose consciousness you're no longer able to help them so when we take care of ourselves first and get ourselves in the best mm-hmm. place possible then we're in a position to be able to help others mm-hmm. yeah 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 the compassion and empathy just starts to flow just mm-hmm. that's just what it is mm-hmm. yeah exactly you we you can fake it for a little bit. <laughs> you can fake it, <laughs> but you know you, you can't you, you can't sustain it. Yeah. So you you got to sort yourself out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So what progress? Because you've been doing this for a long time. So I'm assuming you must have seen some progress in the period of time you've been doing this. What progress do you think humanity has made over the last number of years? Yeah, we're on a turning point, and and I don't know whether made progress since I started. We estimate since I started the orangutan project, over 100,000 orangutans have been murdered. Oh. And the rainforest has been destroyed and killed agriculture pests. So obviously not a success story. Have we got the plans and are we turning it around? Have we helped hundreds of thousands of individuals and, not, you know, we're on the verge of securing these ecosystems to, you know, to, to bring the orangutans to extinction crisis? Yes, all that's happening. But, you know, this has been a period of, you know, a further increasing in destruction, the acceleration of destruction of our planet and the acceleration of the extinction of species. And so leading us into this, this critical point, you know, where is this decade, as I said, this is the one that's going to determine whether we can turn this around mm. or, you know, we, we, we will spiral downwards um, and into a situation that's, that's no longer recoverable. Mm. I'll just quickly explain that because it may not be intuitively obvious. For a rainforest, you know, you need a certain amount of rainforest for the rainforest to survive because the rainforest is like a big evaporative air conditioner. It lowers the temperature, you know, and that. But if you increase the temperature, you get less, less fruit, less flowering, more fires, more droughts, mm-hmm. you know, less rain, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because the less rainforest and this feedbacks and destroys more rainforest. Mm-hmm. So once you get to a certain size of rainforest, it just collapses. So you just can't save a patch of rainforest and think it's going to be there, you know. It will just naturally 
And similarly, we're seeing these in the biggest scale, we're seeing these feedback loops. Destruction of rainforests is in part driving climate change and climate change is turning around and causing more droughts, causing the El Nima effect and, mm. you know, and all of these other things, which are driving the rainforest to collapse. And so, and, and the population of the orangutans in, are the same thing. Once you get to a certain size, they just inbreed to extinction, mm. you know, and the population gets too small, fragmented. And so with these feedback loops, there's, there's no time to waste, you know, and there's, there's no way of, in a sense, divorcing ourselves and saying, well, we don't have to worry about the orangutans or the rainforest. We can do X and Y and we'll save the planet. No, it's beyond that, you know, we have to do all the things, we have to decarbonize our economy, you know, we have to, you know, stop killing and eating animals, you know, for the pleasure of their flesh, but we also have to save the rainforest and the environment, just doing one or more of those things, not all those things, the planet is still doomed. Yeah, we have to, we have to do it all. And in other words, we have to have compassion, consideration for all living beings, because it's beyond the point where, you know, we can, there's anyone left on the lifeboat that can be thrown off it. That's not valuable to the survival of everyone in that lifeboat. Yeah. I don't think people understand how much of a domino effect not doing anything causes. The time is now, like actually the time was 30 years ago, but the time is now we have to as a whole, as a people, as a society, work to save the planet. Because I honestly, I don't think people realize that the more deforestation we have, the faster the destruction of the rest of it, even if it doesn't get cut down by humans. I don't think people understand the collapse Mm. of things. I don't think people understand that, oh, those 50 polar bears, they'll stay forever. No, they're going to, like you said, they're going to start to inbreed and they're going to implode on themselves. I don't think we as humans have been taught enough about how Mm -hmm. some of these things work. And maybe that's the downfall of the human condition is that we're just not taught how things work, how the process is. And maybe that's the conversation we need to go forward as far as conservation of this planet is to teach people how certain ecosystems will just naturally collapse if we keep cutting around the edge. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of teaching is very segmented and it's not absolutely taught in like how they all sort of interact with each other and relate to each other. I think in general, our education system has degraded to um, basically giving us the education required of us to become good workers and employees not good citizens, Mm -hmm. not, not good people, not people who are going to be happy and healthy, Mm -hmm. you know, just going out and getting a job is not enough, your, your happiness and and you live a fulfilling, rewarding life, you know, and so it's been degraded to in a sense, yes, you become a good worker, you know, and have skills in order to perform a job, but it needs to be so much more and, and certainly understanding of the natural environment, you know, even if you care about the just the economy, you don't care about nature. An economy is <laughs> can only be derived from the natural resources mm. of the environment for which the economy is established. Oh, <laughs> you yep. know, so to, to you know what they did is this company said those are called externalities. They're things we know that exist, but they have no bearing on a business model. The reason why they had no bearing because they pass the true cost of production onto others and the powerless. They can pollute the seas. They can destroy the, the, the soil. They can destroy the rainforest. They can put carbon in the atmosphere. There's no feedback to them. Hey, you know, we know that's a problem, but it's not our problem and it doesn't affect our business model. Yeah. What we need is businesses to um, not pass the true cost of production onto others. You know, and, and therefore be in, in tune with the environment. And that's possible, you know. It just means that, you know, that they just can't be exploitative. They can be creative, innovative, and all those things yeah. that, you know, that business and capitalism give us, you know. They just can't be exploitative, you know. And that's a good thing for everybody, including them, because eventually they can't keep earning money on a dead planet. Yeah. I think another part of the conversation, we need to get away from, oh, oil this, oil that, oil this, carbon dioxide that, and start talking maybe more about pollution. Because I think that is more, you know, we kind of forgot about that. You know, in the seventies, it was all the rage. Everyone was talking about pollution. The skies were brown, everything. But now we're looking out and there's been, you know, enough 
work in that direction to clear up our skies, but we're really not talking about pollution anymore. And we're giving passes to these companies and these factories because, oh, well, they're not polluting our skies. Well, look what they're doing to our soil. Look what they're doing to our water. Look what they're doing. How much plastic are they using? Look what's happening in the third world countries when we ship our plastic over to another country and it just gets tossed out. You know, Mm. maybe that's a conversation that we need to start having again. Go back to the 70s and start talking about pollution because that is something that everybody, no matter where you are politically, you can understand that. You can understand pollution. You see it in front of your face. Mm -hmm. Do you want trash all over your front lawn? Probably not. It doesn't matter where you come from. You probably don't want trash all over your lawn. So maybe that's what we need to add to the conversation, pollution. Yeah, well, exactly. It's about sustainable economies, which is, it's all linked with the carbon issue as as well. I mean, it's a bit like what I'm talking about exploitative is the light bulb in in America. It's been shining that, that, you know, Thomas Edison made. Well, our light bulbs don't last that long. Well, because the design not to last that long. The economic model is, you know. Mm -hmm. So what we need to do, we can have washing machines that last our lifetime. Mm -hmm. It's not genius to, to design one. You can you know, so we need that design, you know, economies where we build things to last, you know, they used you know, to and, 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 are, <laughs> and are, are recyclable. And that's easy. We can do that. What it does mean, unfortunately, is because they won't be passing true cost production onto others. Companies can still be prosperous and make a lot of money, just not the exorbitant amounts, you know. So but it's getting ridiculous. You know, you've got trillionaires now. What? What are you going to do? They can't spend it. Literally, they've done the calculations. There's no way. They can't fly enough Learjets. They can't buy enough cars. They can't live in enough houses. It's actually impossible within a lifetime to spend that money. And they can't take it with them when they die. Yeah. I'm not against them becoming rich and, you know, and living whatever extravagant lifestyles they want. But you can't use that money anymore. (laughs) Why don't we just build, you know, things which are recyclable, last for a long time and, and, based on innovation and assistance rather than destroying the planet and creating waste. Absolutely. You yeah. Know, so, and it's a win-win for everybody, you know, because this, this concentration of wealth into fewer, fewer people, it's just really crappy for the economy as well, because the economy is not dr- driven by billionaire entrepreneurs. That's a misnomer. Economy is driven by consumers which have disposable cash <laughs> you know so more people down at the bottom of the pyramid who have cash actually make the economy strong and prosperous yeah. you know so it's, it's a win-win situation for everyone so this idea of this constant accumulation to fewer fewer people is a zero-sum game of destruction even for the people at the top of the pyramid. Yeah, maybe all those people that are trillionaires just throw money into saving the free force. <laughs> I don't know. Well, it's kind of ironic. I mean, you say that because we've done the calculations of, in a sense, what we need in the next 10 years to save the ecosystem. We need $20 million a year for 10 years, you know, buying, leasing, developing rainforest, agriculture, you know, doing that. Oh, in this day and age, that's nothing. Nothing. You know, one of these billionaires, it's loose change. Honestly, they probably would not notice it's missing from their bank account, you know, and, and they can't spend it anyway. They've they got more money than they can spend. But we can save three species of orangutans, elephants and tigers and, and start helping climate change. But the money's not available, you know. I go around the world fundraising and talking to people. I can't raise 20 million. I'm trying. But it's concentrated in and it's locked up, mm. you know, it's locked up away from in, you know, intelligent action that could actually make a better world for everybody. Right. It's usually more the average person that is contributing, donating to causes like this, I think. Yeah, it seems certainly with from my experience, it's the poor don't contribute. Well, the poor, right? yeah. <laughs> they're worried about paying the rent and that sort of stuff. So they're not donors to, let's say, us. Mm-hmm. Rich, by and large, not. I mean, there's notable exceptions, but but largely they live in a culture with blinkers, you know, that worried about money, power and, and whatnot, you know, and competing against the other billionaire. You know, so they don't have the cultural mindset to most of the time. I'm generalizing, of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the middle class that gives. Exactly. It's the educated middle class which give to causes. And unfortunately for us, it's the middle class which is disappearing. The rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer, and the middle class, you know, so many middle class people are falling off the bottom end, yeah. going down into the working poor. And so that's why we're seeing, especially in tough times like this, is our, our income goes down. 
because it's a middle class, which is in a sense a driver of innovation and the economy, you know, um, it, and, and the driver of giving, you know, and philanthropy, which we've seen destroyed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I pledge that if I ever make enough money, I'm going to give you lots. <laughs> <laughs> And from my mouth to God's ears, because <laughs> I would love to do more. You know, if this podcast and your story touches just a handful of people, then I think we're doing our job. If somebody hears this and says, you know what, I'm going to give what I have right now and I'll give more next month if I have extra, you know, just that empathy and that compassion that just that drives you just want to help without having Mm. to worry about what's going to come back, you know, for them. And we just have to on a whole, like start thinking that way. That's why I love what you said, but working for the animals, not with the animals, Mm -hmm. because using that three letter word for changes everything. It Mm -hmm. really changes everything. And uh, hopefully we touch, you know, a good chunk of people with this, with your story. So we can at least start some ball rolling Mm -hmm. in your direction. Yeah, no, exactly. Because, you know, the world's such a complex place. Like, you know, economists can't predict where the economy is going. You know, chimpanzees outperform most stockbrokers in picking stocks. (laughs) You know, there are successful stockbrokers, but only what random chance would naturally predict. (laughs) The world is such a complex place. Even the most educated, you know, really have a bad time predicting it. You know, and raising funds to save orangutans is a bit like that, you know. I guess I know a famous advertising person said, I know only 20% of my advertising work, 80% is wasted. I don't know which 20% it is. Mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> so fundraising is often like that. I, I do talks, I do echo tours, I do podcasts and, you know, and, and I, you know, newsletters. And um, I, I'm pretty sure 80% of, you know, everything I do is falling on deaf ears. And only 20% is reaching, but for life for me, I can't predict where that 20% is. Yes. Mm. And so what we have to do is keep the activity going. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Keeping that love and compassion and keep going out there. And then the more active we are, the more opportunities they are. Opportunities, you know, even though they're relatively random, greatly increase with your activity. Right. You know, and the best thing I can do is, is to keep talking, yeah. keep connecting keep working Mm -hmm. and then the the opportunities may or may not come from areas which I'm predicting Mm -hmm. well I'd like to share a little bit about the three books you have Mm -hmm. so maybe you can give a little bit of overview of what each book is about and maybe people will hear something that they find resonates with them and they'll decide oh I I need to read that book (laughs) I'm particularly interested in the one about finding our humanity but I think that uh, the other ones orangutans and their battle for survival and orangutans my cousins my friends that sounds like it could be pretty interesting based on what you had said a little bit earlier too yeah all my books are autobiographical you know by nature Mm -hmm. and obviously you know with science and understanding you know of orangutans in this case you know as as part of it battle for survival you know is, is about my story of getting to know you know you know, 15 to 20 orangutans, you know, and, and, and now my personal relationship with those over many years, you know, being with them when they're born, you know, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, you know, being a friend with them. Because unlike other people who work with orangutans, they say in zoos, they work with them behind bars and they're scared of them, you know, mm-hmm. and have a yellow line, don't cross this line, all the orangutans can get you. But I spent my life actually in with the orangutans, <laughs> you know, with no bars, you know, um, you know, connecting with them, you know, as, as individuals. And that's that story. My cousin, my friend, then goes to the next part of my journey where, you know, wanting, you know, understanding that orangutans are persons that don't belong captivity outside is, you know, taking orangutans from captivity back to the wild, you know, and the journey and exploration of persons, non-human persons, orangutans, as they go back to the wild. Mm-hmm. And finding our humanity, the next one is, is about the inner journey. The personal journey, mm. intense, um, and the more the philosophical of the books, mm-hmm. driving that that part of um, biography, I guess. Mm-hmm. And where can our listeners find those books? The e-books. My cousin's my friend is an audiobook and e-book on the usual platforms. Finding Your Humanity is an e-book on the usual platforms. But all of them can be also purchased in hard copy and uh, on our website, theorangutanproject.org. Mm. You can go on there and go 
into the book section and purchase a book. Okay. It's all printed in on, on environmentally friendly, recycled paper, environmentally friendly inks. And, mm. and also, of course, there is no author royalties or anything. I, don't, I have never earned a cent from these books. Mm. 100% of the money goes to the conservation of orangutans, tigers, and elephants. Beautiful. Okay. Yeah. So there you go. If you want to help support the orangutan project to help support the orangutans, the rainforest, you can support by purchasing one of uh, the books. Or purchase 20 and give them out as gifts. <laughs> There's another idea. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Christmas isn't that far away. <laughs> no, <Nope>, it's not. <laughs> Yeah, I think those are ones that I would definitely want to look into when I'm able to. And we'll share the link on your site that goes directly to where your books are. Mm-hmm. And we'll definitely put all that on the show notes. So yes. any of you guys that want to learn more about Leif and the Orangutan Project and his books, we'll have all of the mm-hmm. information on our show notes. So it'll be an easy click for you. Yeah. And the website has a lot of information. <laughs> yeah, I also have my Leif. Cox, one word, .org, O-I-G website, and that gives a direct links to all the books. My papers are published in peer-reviewed journals and that kind of stuff. So that, that's often a good one to, you know, if people want to go straight to, you know, printed information or um, documentaries and that, that sort of stuff. And, yeah. Okay, great. Now, I know when I talked to you previously, you had wanted to share a little bit about your perspective around cats and dogs being companion animals. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's an interesting subject. And of course, you know, you know, dogs, which are, you know, well, first of all, is one of the feedback loops is there's certain animals we shouldn't be living closely with pigs and cows and chickens and right that's where we got all the pandemics from you know all the diseases you know are are coming from our exploitation of these animals and one of the reasons is we're not meant to live closely with them and certainly not exploit them and you know destroy their lives as we do for the pleasure of their flesh that's just not a good idea both from health perspective pandemic perspective and environmental perspective not to mention welfare and compassion perspective now we've got a couple of sections here one is dogs you know and i think you know the evidence is going back to about seventy thousand years that we've been living with dogs as a symbiotic relationship dogs basically domesticated themselves mm-hmm. you know we, we've, we've grown together and we've been living with each other and dogs have evolved you know languages and behaviors and stuff which are only meant for their interaction with humans mm-hmm. and we don't catch dogs and us we don't get diseases from each other we i mean we share the same diseases there's no dog pandemic you know from dogs or vice versa because we've co-evolved to be living together you know and in fact i would argue that we are in a sense not fully human unless we're with dogs they're really just a part of our makeup because you know that amount of period of time is of evolutionary significance you know so i certainly don't want to live in a world without dogs i have two dogs on my feet right now (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, you know, and um, the pack, all, my pack sleeps together. We're all on the bed, you know. Yeah. <laughs> There's no dog in the outhouse. You know, we, the pack is together. And that's part of living a wonderful life. So I would say, look, dogs are just the most wonderful things and we should always be living with them and life is better with dogs. Now, the agricultural revolution came maybe about 2,000 years ago. That's when we started storing grain. And then, of course, immediately we had a rodent problem because that attracted rodents. Mm -hmm. Now, in this sense, cats have never been domesticated. They probably don't even like us that much. (laughs) Or they they think of us as, you know, as as objects of slavery (laughs) from their point of view. Anyone who has a cat knows their attitude, you know. And they've basically come in and we've gone, whoa, they're eating all the mice and hanging around and they seem good. And so it's a different symbolic relationship that, you know, lesser period, you know, but necessary. You can't have an agricultural society without cats, you know, because they're the ones keeping the roads down. And I certainly know when we have the um, the camps, you know, for orangutan release or, or rehabilitation, we always have a cat. you got to have a cat yeah. because if you don't have a cat, the mice come around and the rats. So every station you've got where there's all the, the station cat. It's a natural part of the fact of, of agricultural civilization. It's our symbiotic relationship with cats. So, you know, so at least from my point of view, those are the animals we should be sharing our lives with, you know, cats and dogs. Other animals, no, we, we, we really need to, you know, in a sense, stop destroying them like we do with pigs, chickens and goats. But with the wildlife, 
you know, having that beautiful relationship of seeing them in the wild, does that make sense? And seeing them free in their own societies and, and cultures. And that's how we should experience them and, and enjoy them. So, yeah, that, that's kind of my summary, my viewpoint on companion animals and dogs and cats in particular. I love that. I always say dogs chose people for companionship and cats chose people for convenience. <laughs> yeah, and it's natural because... Dogs and humans are packed. Yeah. We live in societies and it's important. doesn't make sense. And for humans to survive, it has to be a part of a group. A human can't survive by itself and a dog can't survive by itself. Yeah. It needs to be part of a pack. Mm-hmm. And so we have this natural inclination as this joint society is we want to be with each other. We feel yeah. safe and secure and happy when with each other. And we feel disengaged and separate when we're separately. A cat's a different thing. It's a solitary animal. In fact, it probably tries to get rid of the other cats from its area, <laughs> you know, because, it, you know, it's a solitary animal defending its territory. And so it has a very different attitude towards other beings you know being so much more independent and solitary Mm -hmm. yeah i think we humans chose to be slaves to cats (laughs) yeah Well, certain ones of us. <laughs> it, it's a mutually convenient relationship, you know. <laughs> you know, you know they, they, they tolerate us because they, you know, they provide shelter and lots of mice. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and we and food <laughs> and, we're quite and happy. warmth and like exactly. Oh, oh that lap. Oh, that, that's your legs. No, it's my bed. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm taking it over. It's my bed. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. You, you gotta love the attitude of the cat. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> A lot of what we talk about revolves around cats and dogs and our relationship with them and how we can live with them in harmony and what we do that creates stress for them. And I think a lot of, I think it's a shared perspective of ours is that we constantly expect in large part for our pets to adapt to our human ways. And we don't take a lot of effort to try to understand them and maybe adapt to them to some extent. Yeah, no, I I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. But how I would put it is we've got to recognize that we are Mm co-companions, you know, with these species, you know, and yeah, you know, and they have value themselves and rights and and needs that make sense that need need to be met mm-hmm. is like you know i know with you know in my own is with um my wife said oh the dog should sleep on the floor no it's not the dog's not sleeping on the floor the pack all sleep together yeah. that's the nature you know mm-hmm. you know the, the dogs want to it doesn't make sense mm-hmm. when they're at night where the most dangerous so they wanted the pack to sleep together and if they can they want to sleep on the inside of the pack mm-hmm. have you noticed that all the dogs want to get <laughs> on the inside because yeah. that's a safe spot mm-hmm. you know you, you want the big dogs on the outside if you're a little dog you get on the inside because that's where the safety and that's part of their security that's part of their nature you know right, yeah. so if we're going to share, share our lives and these lives are enriched by sharing our lives with these animals we've got to take into account that, the, that they're members of the family mm-hmm. from our perspective members of the pack from their perspective you know and you know and we've got to accommodate that it can't be a one-sided relationship mm-hmm. exactly yeah you're talking our language right here. <laughs> I actually use the hashtag all the time. Cats are people too. Dogs are people too. Animals are people too. And both Miranda and I try to do is we try to help this podcast give animals a voice. They need to be taken into consideration with everything. If you want to share your life with an animal, you need to bring them into the conversation, period. They have to have a voice. They have to have a say, because like you said, they have their own desires, the needs, they have their own free will, and they want to live their life in harmony. They don't want to have to have a stressful life. And we have to realize that we, if we're just unconscious humans that are just going about our day, being distracted by the things of life, we're blocking that and we're causing them stress because all they want is that compassion and that companionship. Yeah, it's amazing the cognitive dissonance in, in many humans that don't understand that these are self-aware little minds, you know, yeah. just like us. You know, we, we know that. I mean, we know when we dream, there's rapid eye movement, you know, you know, we know what dreaming is. We know when we're having and you see your dog at night is dreaming. It's little eyes are moving. Yeah. Then it has a little doggy mare, you know, it's. Yeah. So you have to comfort it. You wake it up and you tell your dog it's okay. You're just having a dream, you know. We know this. You know, <laughs> we live with these beautiful beings, you know. And how can we just suddenly then make this leap that they don't, you know, in a sense, don't have value. They don't have souls. They don't suffer. They don't have the same anxieties, you know, and issues that we do. And 
deserves a compassion and love, you know, um, just as we do. It, it, it seems mind-boggling that we can't simply accept that as given, you know, especially these beings that share our lives. Yeah, I think that's all based on conditioning, though, generational conditioning, and just how we humans have evolved since especially the industrial civilization, you know, the industrial revolution, these things have changed. And we did an episode on animal welfare and animal rights. And there was actually somebody of notoriety that was teaching people back in the 1800s, I think, Miranda, or the 1700s, that animals don't have a soul and they don't have a sentience. And I think people yeah, I think like it was that. The 1700s, yeah. 1700s. I think that that evolution of humanity yeah, has yeah. conditioned people to not understand animals today. Yeah, no, it's, it's Dante. And um, yeah, there's the idea that animals don't have souls and just biological machines, you know? Yeah, it's kind of a very ignorant perspective. Yeah. And not one is supported by science, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, but, you know, it's almost, it's kind of strange. You know, for a long time, you know, science was, oh, if you treat animals as persons or living beings or conscious beings, you're not being scientific, mm-hmm. you know. And, of course, that is just far from the truth. And, of course, yeah. you know, most intelligent scientists understand that, you know, we're dealing with conscious living beings here, you know. And, yeah. So it's kind of, it's really a, a strange hangover, you know, yeah. a very unenlightened time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And which is funny because I would think misinterpretation of things in say Christian religion, people have misinterpreted stuff in the Bible that gives us dominion. So we're better than animals. And I don't think that that was the initial intention, Mm -hmm. but I think that's what people over the years have misinterpreted for their own agenda, which has started to cause this generational decline. Well, of course, I think we're coming out of that, but before the decline of our view of animals. But now we're starting to come back around and see that animals have value. They have sentience. They have a brain. They have a free will. Like we're starting to see in them what we took for granted in us. Mm. I'm glad of that shift. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I mean, it's all part of the cultural shift after agricultural revolution, where the the men had to basically dominate and destroy female power within societies Mm -hmm. in order to ensure their offspring they had no offspring which inherited the land which meant their survival of, of their genes yeah. and so the demonizing of nature the image of pan becomes the image of devil the, the cloven hoof you know women's power you know knowing femininity one with nature knowing about nature the cultural knowledge of women the herbs the, the medicines of the yeah. forests they become witches you know and have to be burnt mm-hmm. at the stake yeah. feminine power I, which is symbolized by the wise woman doesn't make sense. The wise woman yeah. who would, you know, influence the society, whatever, became the threat. Mm-hmm. And along with that, it, you know, comes with this idea that nature and animals are somehow inferior. And so it's all linked up to, in a sense, you know, in a sense of a lack of compassion and love and connection with animals, but also lack of compassion and love for women. You know, where women suddenly don't have a voice in in the community and are seen objects, you know, and have have less of value and can't be priests and can't be, you know, you know, and can't have authority or have it. It's all part of this, the same ignorance, that makes sense, mm-hmm. which, is, which, is, which is basically corrupted our society. And we need to, in a sense, regain our compassion and love for living beings. We have to make sure women empowerment doesn't make sense and, and women thinking and connection with nature and society and long-term thinking. Mm-hmm. All these things need to be rectified <laughs> within yeah. our society or we're not going to survive mm-hmm. because this kind of short-term, competitive, male-dominated, aggressive society is destroying us mm-hmm. you know it's not good for men to, to live in a society you know we, we're gonna die <laughs> yeah know? and so i will say all good things are worthwhile so if you mention no matter what it is compassion for animals compassion for women's right compassion for a race country future generations it's all the integrated good that needs to happen in yeah. order for us to build a better world i 100 percent agree mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. I don't have any particular other questions for you, but is there anything else that you would like to share before we go? No, no, nothing from me, but a big, big thank you for um, having me on your show. It's been a wonderful conversation and um, yeah, wish you all good, good luck and good fortune with, um, with your future podcast. Oh, thank you very thank you. much. And if you need a platform to get the word out about something, about a fundraiser, whatever, Mm -hmm. just reach out to us. We'll do what we can with our platform to help you in your work and in helping to educate the people that listen to the show so we can start it. We can start the process. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. And you're welcome to be a guest on our show again, and we can have another enlightening conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this has been amazing. And I... (laughs) I want more people to hear about these things so we can start now mm-hmm. and start working for instead of with. Fantastic. Thank you. All right. Have a wonderful rest of your day. It was so wonderful meeting you. Come back soon. Okay, great. Thank you, guys. Bye. Take care. Bye. Wow. What another fantastic conversation. I love it when we have these guests on the show because they bring a different perspective on things and help educate you, our listeners, and hopefully it inspires you, expands you, opens your mind to what could be. And I'm so grateful that we were able to have Leif on the show and hopefully he will come back again. Yes. Amazing conversation. And the work that he does is just phenomenal. I'm grateful for humans like that because we need more of them. So if you have any questions about Leif, the orangutan project, anything about the animal files, please feel free to email us at the animal files podcast at gmail.com. And as we mentioned earlier, we will have all of his information on our show notes for you to just click and go. I recommend all the books. Mm-hmm. I'm going to purchase all three of them on ebook. <laughs> and please check out the website because there's a wealth of information on there as well. Absolutely. And that is the orangutanproject.org. And you can also reach Leif directly at his personal website. And you can get links to all that places. And that's leifcox.org. And that's L-E-I-F-C-O-C-K-S.org. There's just a wealth of knowledge. And while you're online checking around, you can head over to our website, theanimalfilespodcast.com. We'll have all the, the resources for you so you can click and go from there as well. With that, another one and done. <laughs> we'll see you all next week on the Animal Files podcast. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to rate, review, and recommend the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want some more great info, be sure to check out www.theanimalfilespodcast.com.